Well, I don't know if you remember 1987 when the NFL strike hit, but I do. That was the one year that I watched NFL football. So as I said in this series, uh, you're learning a lot about what I don't do. We learned a lot last week, actually. Uh, Drew Thornwell was here, and uh, we learned uh, that pride comes before destruction. You should not end a service by saying, go Bills, and then get slaughtered that day. So it just goes to show, don't trust everything you hear from the stage. In 1987, there was a term, the replacement teams. That song said, the substitutes. And they had to put replacement teams in during the strike. And they looked like the regular team. They wore jerseys like the regular team, but they didn't play like the regular team. In fact, in Chicago, we called them the Spare Bears. In fact, they came up with names for all of them. There were the Los Angeles Shams, the Chicago Spare Bears, the New Orleans St. Elsewheres, and the San Francisco Phony Niners. That was one of my favorites. And the idea was, somebody has stepped into the role of my team, they look like the team, they dress like the team, but they ain't the team. And that is what we're looking at in this series. What is it we put in our life to replace God? What are those replacements? And they play well for a while, they look good for a while, but ultimately they don't fully and finally satisfy. You see, replacements may fill the, the roster temporarily, but they cannot fill the roster permanently. Are you sure they can play temporarily? I'm going to feel a little good about this. Temporarily, it's going to help out in my life. They do play temporarily. That's how replacements work. But they cannot fill the roster permanently. And when you substitute something for God, you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, or you put yourself in the place of God, it works for a little bit. But eventually you wear yourself out. I'll give you an example. Worry. When you worry, you're saying, I can't trust God to handle the universe. I'm going to substitute myself for God. I'm going to worry to control people and circumstances. And and it works for a while. You feel in some way when you worry, you feel like you're controlling things. You're contributing to it in some way. But after a few weeks, months, sometimes years, you can't fill the roster permanently. You're getting ulcers. You You can't handle... The playbook. You can't handle the role of playing God and your body's starting to react to that. Many of us struggle with bitterness. We've got a story of somebody who did something to us for a long time. We're really angry about it. Because we have put ourselves in the place of God. We've replaced God as judge. And so we're keeping track of what that person did or didn't do. And it's just filling with anger and anxiety. Because we substitute ourselves for God in the role of God. Others of us, we, we try and control things. Like... People and circumstances. The two things that can't be controlled. But you're convinced that you could because everyone else didn't quite have the resume for it. So instead of trusting God to trust to, to handle and control people and circumstances, you substitute yourself to control people and circumstances. And it works for a while. It's, it's why your business is done well. It's why your career is done well. But you're getting worn out trying to control people and circumstances. Oh, you could feel... And play temporarily. But eventually it catches up to you. You're not up to the job of being God of the universe. And today we're going to talk about codependency. And how replacements play into that term codependency. Because high performers, type A types, are very tempted to put themselves in a place of God. And end up becoming enablers for people who are looking to find somebody to put in the place of God. I want to give you some characteristics of those who have codependency traits, and we all have some of these, and those who have rescuer or enabling traits. If you have a tendency to 
be codependent, you have a strong need to be taken care of, an inability to be alone, a low self-worth, fear of not being loved, constant need to be filled up by someone or something, a constant need for approval, and a reoccurring need to be rescued from your crisis or from your problems. Now you're going, oh man, I've got a lot of people in my life like that. It's my brother-in-law, it's my uncle, it's my, it's every family reunion, right? You may not be as tempted. Some of us have, have those tendencies to put someone in the place of God. Others of us, we're tempted because we're high-performance people. We get sucked into these scenarios because we have these traits. I can take care of others better than they can take care of themselves. I can help here. I can use my gifts and rewards to keep this relationship going, even though it seems a little dysfunctional. I'm going to set aside my own interests to solely focus on someone else. Usually these people have a real big heart, really compassionate toward others, and they stop meeting their own needs because they're so focused on someone else's. You keep helping even if a person is abusive emotionally or financially. You're inappropriately enmeshed into other people's problems. You have trouble saying no or value is tied to other people's opinion, which is why you don't say no, because you've replaced their approval for God. So you can't say no because saying no just is devastating to you. Or a constant need to be needed. Now, how does it show up? It shows up all over the place. You probably, as I read it, you're like, oh man, I do it in this area, I do it in that area. It's the need to give advice to your grown kids and they feel suffocated because they don't want all your great advice, but you feel like you want, you need to be needed even if they don't want you. It's the addict who gambles, it's the addict with a drug addiction, and they keep coming back and asking you to bail out of it, and you're trying to figure out where the boundaries are. You go, well, and they even hit you up with, I thought you were going to church these days. Wouldn't Jesus help me out? Well, Jesus already wrote you four checks. I'm not sure Jesus wrote you a fifth. And you're wondering where the boundaries are in the situation, because here's a person who is turning you into their source, into their revenue, into their God. In these kind of relationships, it's always built on one person's a giver, and the other person is a taker. And the giver ends up taking responsibility for the taker's bad decisions because they become a replacement. So we're going to look at a passage today that really addresses this firsthand and how we can do two things. One, how do we stop looking for replacements? And then how do we really move toward freedom and health in our relationship by replacing our replacements with God? What would that look like? Let's begin with stop replacing the replacements. You see, the Bible describes what happened in 1987 as the problem in the human heart. We are all on strike with God. We basically, God, I don't trust management. I don't trust your decisions. I'm going on strike. I can replace you. I can do better than you can in handling my life. Sure, thank you for the breath. Thank you for the earth. Thank you for the sun. You handled that fine. I'll take it from here. I'm on strike. And there's two ways we go on strike. One way is we scout for a replacement, something besides God to bring me meaning and purpose. And they're usually good things. My approval, it's my performance, it's how I do in my job, it's my role as a dad. That becomes my replacement for worth rather than God. Or the second way we go on strike is we say, I'll become the replacement. And again, as I mentioned, type A types are particularly tempted to become a replacement for God, for themselves and for others. So we're in Judges, in a story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah is a really strong female leader. She's one of the few female judges, and she's going to be tempted to be sucked in to rescue this codependent guy named Barak. Here's what it says. Then 
she sent and called for Barak, that's Deborah, the son of Abanon from Canaan, that's where he's from, and said to him, has not God of Israel commanded you to do something? Go, deploy troops at Mount Tabar. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Tepali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I'll deploy Sisera. This is what God told you. Go do this. I'm going to help out. You'll even take on the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver you into his hand. So she basically said, didn't God tell you to take on this obstacle and overcome it and he would help you? To which Barak says, yeah, he said that, but I don't think God's enough. But you are. If you go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, then I won't go. And here you see somebody who heard from God. I'll be with you. I'll help you overcome some things. Deborah shows up. Hey, I thought you were supposed to be following that God thing. Well, could you be my replacement? I feel like if you went with me, I can't handle it by myself. I feel like you could help me handle it. And this brings up traits. Traits of people who are tempted to find a replacement and traits of people who are becoming replacements. And we'll look at those together. Here are the traits. If you're looking for replacements, in one sense we all are, you begin to, the first lie is, I'm going to make it last. I'm going to take, other people didn't make fame last. They weren't smart enough. I'll make fame last. Other people couldn't make people approval last. Well, they weren't good enough. I will make approval last. I'm a victim. I can't change. Not without you, Deborah. I can't do it myself, but if you go, I'll go. Those for those who are tempted to find replacements. For those who become replacements for other people, we have these three lies. Well, they're really victims. They can't handle it themselves. They can't change. See, there's people who are victimized, but the difference between victimized, which is horrible, and making your identity the fact that you're now a victim. Second thing, well, they can't change without me. And I guess they can't do it themselves. Which can you can see how these lies would really play in especially a compassionate heart, a good heart, a kind heart, a helpful heart could be tied into this and you would be locked into a cycle that you can't get out of. And now you resent what's going on, but you're not sure how you got here to these lies. I want to begin by looking at the lies of those who are looking for replacements. The first one is I can make it last. Right before Deborah was on the scene, there's a guy named Ehud. Amazing story if you haven't read it. Uh, Ehud is a left-handed judge who goes in, kills the king of Eglon, this terrorist commander, ISIS-like. He kills him. And as soon as Ehud dies, who'd led them back to this incredible successful season, they throw out the playbook. They go back into this whole cycle of getting away from God, replacing God with their success. And now God removes his blockers, sells them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. And we've been looking at this cycle, if you remember. And the cycle is, Team Israel's doing well. When they're doing well is when they're in trouble because they ignore God's playbook and find replacements. God removes his blockers. If you don't want my help, I won't give it to you. They get hit by another nation. Oh my goodness, this didn't work. It worked temporarily, but not permanently. So they cry out to God for help. He sends them a new quarterback. In this case, it's Deborah, who leads them to a winning season. Now this cycle, we see in our friends and our own life all the time. Money doesn't make me happy. Why do I keep trying to make money make me happy? The, the, the new house I got, I love the new house. The new car I got, I love the new car. It really made me happy for about a month. And then I needed an upgrade. But we go, you know what? But this iPad, this iPhone will do it. I'm going to make it last this time. And we say this cycle that we see all around us, that may be true for some people, but not for me. I'm going to make it last. And that's what the Israelites decide to do. 
I'm, even though everyone in the past has made this mistake, we will find a replacement that really works. But it doesn't last. In fact, they find this in NFL in particular. The NFL players find their identity in their success, in the crowds, in the fame. And it's not just something they like, it's their identity. And they really struggle with retirement. Because now who am I if people aren't cheering? Who I am I if you don't want my autograph? Tiki Barber said this after he retired. I realized how fast the opportunities disappear. I couldn't make it last. You've been replaced on the team, on the field. You've been replaced in people's minds. That's when you start getting really depressed. Even an NFL career over that many years, it just doesn't fully and completely satisfy. 2009 Sports Illustrated said that what percentage do you think of NFL players end up bankrupt? Sort of guess in your head. 20%, 10%, 2%, 78% go bankrupt. To which I think to myself, but I wouldn't. I'd make it last. I wouldn't be the high percentile. I would make it last. But see, here's what happens. When you find your identity in your money and buying stuff to upgrade to look good, you don't think that way. You just think this will always last. This will never come to an end. I'll make it last. In fact, a VP representative to the NFL players describes the research they're doing right now to try and help players deal with what they're calling an identity crisis. They've turned a good thing, fame, into an ultimate thing. He said, Troy said, you're talking about an identity crisis when they retire. Every athlete when they retire, has to face the same question when they're done. And who am I? Who am I? I put my full identity into this. And I think there's no better example of this than Brett Favre, the serial retirer. (laughs) In fact, let's watch a quick clip just to remember how many times he tried to retire, but he kept saying, no, my identity is in this. I kept coming back. And he went from being at the top of his game to a bit of a laughing stock. Let's watch. It's certainly not just true of the NFL. It's true for many of us who tried retiring. And we had a great golf game for six months. And we're like, man, I'm bored. Who am I now that I don't have my title? Who am I now that I don't have people calling me and asking me to make important decisions? And that's what happens when you put your identity in a replacement. And you say, no, but I'm going to make it last. The three other lies that we see from this text is the second one is I am a victim. I'm a victim of things that happened to me. You know what? I could have got away with this, but something happened to me. And and Barak certainly has that. Remember, Jabin is a horrific commander of the opposing army. And it says that for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. And look, if you go right before that, it says Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. So these chariots of iron represent the victimization that occurred to Barak. And he's like, you know, I got victimized, my family got victimized, our, our relatives got victimized by Jabin and his 900 chariots. And so when God comes to him and says, I want you to confront how you were victimized, I want to help you push through and overcome how you were victimized, all he can hear is victimized. I can't take on Jabin. The things he did to me, the insecurity it dropped in me, the fear in me, I'm a victim. And the thing about finding your identity in being a victim is you can't move forward because you're always a victim. You've now put your identity in being a victim. So when you tell stories, it's always why you can't do it, because you are a victim of circumstances, of terrible things. 
And therefore, you can't move forward. And, and somebody that you're trying to help who sees themselves not as victimized, but actually their identity is a victim, it's hard to help them because their identity is in being a victim. The NFL player, the Jets, New York Jet, Lavernius Coles, who decided to come out publicly with the fact that he'd been sexually abused when he was 10 and 13 years old, a man that his mother later married victimized him over those three years. It was reported in the New York Times. Coles recently decided to free himself of the secret, it said, in hopes that he would help other children who have endured abuse. He, quote, said, I haven't talked about it in forever, but I know that holding something like this inside has been a burden for so long. Coles remained silent about the abuse for years, instead using it, the pain of that, to drive him to become one of NFL's best receivers. So again, replacements have a benefit. It's what drove him. But it was also eating him from the inside. He told the Times that receiving counseling was hard because it clashed with the athletic mentality of shrugging off your injuries and just let it go. You just want to put it behind you, he said. I think, you know, as a man, when you're violated in that way, you don't know how other people are going to take it, how other people are going to view you. There's so much that comes from revealing that part of your life and story. But coming up, I always felt like I was the only one that this had ever happened to. Then, when I started going to different sessions, they let me know that it happens to a lot more people than you think. And he found that his journey toward finding a replacement for his identity in God, was he, for, of, of being a victim, was God. That healing can come from opening up your secrets and not being controlled by the shame. And realizing that can be a horrible chapter of your life. And I've walked with families. I've walked with family members who have been victimized in this way. And it is so hard to move from I'm a victim to I was victimized. But that step is the step toward freedom. Where it's now a horrible chapter in your life, but it's no longer your identity. It's no longer going to define what's happened to you or what will define you for the rest of your life. And for Barak, he was defined by what Jabin and those chariots of oppression had done to him. It will pop up when God calls him to change. We'll get back to that in a moment. The third lie that we see that he has is not just I'm a victim, but I can't change. Notice what he says here. She says, hey, has not God told you to move forward, to find some healing, to find some help, to go lead the people against this? And look at what he stumbles across. God may have said that, but he's asking me to go up on Jabin's army with his chariots of iron and his multitudes. I can't confront that. That's many of us. We'll become an NFL receiver and take on all the challenges of, of, of career But confronting our past and our secrets, I just can't change that. I can't address that. I can't open that door. That's exactly how he feels. He mentions Jamin's army and chariots by name. The third lie, or fourth lie that he believes, is somebody looking for replacements, is that I can't do it myself. I mentioned this one already. He says, listen, I can't do it myself. I can't overcome this. I can't move forward with this. Deborah, could you be my replacement? If you go, then I'll go. But if you don't, I'm not moving forward. I, I am not able to move forward in this. So what he's saying is, Deborah, I want to put you in the place of God. And that's what happens when you find your identity as being a martyr or codependency or a victim. Is you've taken somebody else, you put them in the place of God, and then you resent the fact that they can't live up to it. <laughs> They're not making you happy. They, they, they do a little bit, but not enough. They always could do more. They always should do more. They ought to do more. 
and ultimately both people end up unsatisfied. Because replacements can play temporarily, but they cannot fill the roster permanently. Even when the 49ers were playing, one of the phony Niners was in the locker room, and Joe Montana walked in. And so here's one of the phony Niners asking for the autograph of Joe Montana of the real 49ers. So even the phony Niners know who the real team is, right? And when you put something or someone in the place of God, you sense it's not ultimately fulfilling. You're looking for somebody else's signature, some other meaning and purpose. I don't know which one of those lies you fall susceptible to. I probably have two of them that affect me. But I much more identify with as a good-hearted person, as a high-performance person, getting sucked into codependent relationships where I end up allowing myself to be somebody's replacement. So Deborah is so clever here in putting some defensive strategies in place to help victims move forward to help people move forward without becoming their God. Four defenses we're going to look at real quick. First one that Deborah has, and this is a how do you replace a replacement. So Deborah's able to do this with four strategies. Defense number one, refuse to be somebody else's replacement. Notice what she says. Listen, I'll go with you. I want to help you. If you, if you need a little help to start this journey, I'm going to go with you. But there's going to be no glory for you in this journey. As a journey you're taking, for the Lord will sell, sister. I'm not doing this. I'm not given the victory. It's not going to come because I came with you. The Lord, I want to point you to God. God's the one that's going to help. He's the one you need to look toward. He's the one. I'm, I'm not going to be a replacement for him. I'll walk with you. I'll help you if you want to move forward. But ultimately, it's your higher power. In this case, it's the God of Israel. That's what's going to give you the source you need. I cannot satisfy she refuses to be a replacement. The second thing she does in her interaction with Barak is that she allows him to experience consequences. And this is hard if you're a people lover and you don't like people to be hurt. Sometimes people learn best when they go through pain. Like, well, I don't want my kids to have pain. Oh, I don't want my brother to have pain. Oh, I don't want... Well, she does. She says there's consequences. If you do this with me, you're not going to get the glory. God wants you to have the glory. I trusted God. I overcame this. And God did amazing things. You have an incredible story to tell. But you're not going to have that story because you're asking me to go along with it. People are going to end up giving me the credit. And you're going to lose the benefits of trusting God yourself. So she lets them experience the consequences. But she said, but I will still go with you. But I'm trying to point you towards your own road, towards your own path. The third defense she puts in place is that she constantly emphasizes his personal responsibility while she's helping. This is so brilliant by her. She keeps saying, hey, I'm going to help, I'm going to assist, I'm going to go along, but I'm not your God, I'm not your source, and this is your journey. Look how many times she says it. I will go with you, but there's no glory for you. This is about you and what you're doing. The journey you are taking. This isn't the journey I'm taking and you're sort of along with. No, no, this is your journey. I'm assisting you on your path to recovery. I'm helping you on your path to growing up. I'm helping you on your path toward breaking free of that addiction. This is your journey. Don't make it my journey. See how she does that? The fourth thing she does is really clever here. Is that, well, actually, let me tell you a story before I do that. Um, there's a great book on boundaries. And those of us who struggle with these areas um, really aren't good at boundaries. This great book called Necessary Endings, I gave it out twice this week. I had a uh, dad call me up, and his son-in-law has just been very unhealthy. I don't know if it's abusive or not, but at least unhealthy with his daughter. 
And he was going to have a conversation, but he said, you know, I just don't know how to set the boundary here. I want to help them in their marriage, but I also need to lay some consequences down. And so I, I gave him this book, which I've read four or five times, called Necessary Endings, which is about how to set appropriate boundaries in business, in family, in relationships, but to do it with a good heart. He read three chapters of it. He texted me this week. He's like, oh, my goodness, this was the best book. This is so helping me say, I'm here to help you guys in your marriage, but I'm the father-in-law. I can only help assist you. I can't fix it. If you guys want to take some steps forward and you feel like me as a pastor counselor could help, I want to come alongside, but this is your journey to take. I can't fix this. I can only help you if you guys want to fix it. He goes, oh, so helpful. Lots of personal examples in here, especially when you have an employee relationship and you're the boss. And in one sense, every time you go to have a performance review or to call them to account for their behavior, they got a lot of potential. In their potential, they also have this tendency to always blame the circumstances, the timing, the other things. And he lays out very specific principles and conversations to have. One example he gives of a guy who says, listen, we really want you in this job. But here's the kind of person we need in this job, somebody who can do X, Y, and Z. So I'm hoping that you can be that kind of person. But you have 30, 60, whatever it was, 90 days. I need to see these kind of behaviors coming out of you. No more blaming no more excusing. And if you can be that person, and I hope you can, I'm all for you, then we want to keep you here. But if you can't, that's the kind of person we need in this job. Personal empathy, personal support, yet clear boundaries. That's what Deborah did here with Barak. She was able to not be his replacement. Which again is why you see her fourth line of defense is that Deborah constantly talks to Barak and says... I want to remind you, again, don't trust in me as your source. Don't trust me as your identity. I want you to trust God's ability to be your boss, to be your coach in the situation. She says, has not the Lord gone out before you? See, what happens is, Sisera gathered together all his chariots. They go to battle. 900 chariots of iron. They show up. Oh, my goodness. He's facing his worst fear. And all the people who are with him. And Deborah said to Barak, up, this is it. Come on, this is what you've been preparing for. Up, this is the day in which the door, God, the Lord's going to deliver you. Not, not me. God's going to help you through this. God's going to help you overcome this. He's going to deliver Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord already gone before you? He's helping you. He's guiding you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera fled away on foot. And now Barak... You begin to see him making some journey. Now he pursues, without Deborah, all the chariots in the army. So Deborah says, I'm willing to walk with you for a time as long as God's your coach and God's your source. But I want you to keep looking to something else to be your primary source of identity. And he does. And God does this amazing thing. So much so, he's going into the next battle, beginning to see God as his source, not Deborah. Powerfully practical steps on how to not look for a replacement and how to not become a replacement. Because here's the thing. Replacements, they can always play, the, play temporarily. But they cannot fill permanently. So what does that look like for us? Well, I think there's a lot in there to think about. I think we need to identify two things. Number one, what is your replacement team? What is your go-to thing that you use to replace God? I'll tell you one of mine is Efficiency. Efficiency is a good thing, but I make it into an ultimate thing. As I shared at the first service today, I talk to gas pumps. 
a lot. I yell at gas pumps a lot because I want to be efficient. And I get a lot of anger comes out of me because I pop out of my car, I'm flipping open the, the fuel, I'm popping open the fuel thing, I'm pushing at the ATM card, I'm grabbing the nozzle, hitting the button I want, I'm, I'm pumping. It's not going. Urgh! Why is it not coming? And it's like asking me a hundred questions. What's your zip code? Hit enter. Where's the gas? Do you want a car wash? No, I don't want a car wash. No, I don't want a receipt. I want gas for crying out. I already pushed the button. It's taking so long. Fine. Ten bucks is enough. I can't wait any longer. Now, that really does happen. When efficiency, a good thing, becomes an ultimate thing, I get really irritated in efficient people. Because it's an ultimate. At work, I get irritated. At home, I get irritated at my kids. Because it's just not a good thing I'm trying to encourage you in. It's an ultimate thing. And then I get mad at myself. It's some self-hatred if I'm not efficient enough when I make it my ultimate thing. So that's mine. My replacement team can be efficiency. It can also be people's approval. What is your go-to replacement team? For some of us, it's our good works. Yeah, some people need grace. That's fine for those kind of people. But I don't need grace. I'm a good works person. And you find your identity in your good works, your role as a mom, the behavior of your kids, your reputation. What's your replacement team? And what is the moments or the circumstances that you're most vulnerable to put yourself as a replacement, worry, control, judge, or to become a replacement. It's that person who calls. It's that situation you can't set boundaries in. You've got to ask yourself, well, you know, the reason I'm having trouble setting boundaries is because I'm putting myself and letting that person make me their God. And I'm not up to the job. I've got to put some of these defenses in place. What's your go-to replacement team? Mine's approval. And what's your most vulnerable environment? It's when somebody wants my help, and I get approval, so I don't say no. Let's go back to our cycle. See, the cycle is, and I tell you, for, for folks I've met, professional people in Cincinnati, the two lies I find that show up the most are these two. I can make it last, and I can do it myself. And that is why the grace of God, the main message of the Bible, is so hard for good professional people to hear. Because we say, grace says I can't do it myself. I need Jesus to die for me. And I need him to make me acceptable. And I go, you know, maybe for some people, but not me. Have you seen my resume? I can do it myself. And I can make it last. And this good thing, making it last, high performance, becomes the very obstacle that's keeping you from God's very best, his grace. In fact, I'd like you to hear firsthand a story. I'm going to invite the band to come up, if you guys would. Can we give a warm welcome to my friend Steve Walter? Steve, come on up. We've got a maze for you there. To... Maze. <laughs> Steve came in and uh, shared with me about six weeks ago what God's been doing in his heart for the last couple of years. And Steve, why don't you share with us a little bit? Um, I just talked about how good works can, can become a barrier or a replacement for grace. What was your spiritual uh, journey growing up, and what are some of the ahas that you've had um, in the last couple of weeks, months, and years? Well, a lot of what you're talking about this morning is very applicable. So um, I was raised in a very strict 
Catholic family. Uh, mm-hmm. My mom, when I was a little kid, would bring me to church with her. Uh, I went to St. Xavier High School where, at that time anyway, Mass was mandatory every day. So that was kind of the atmosphere that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And when I got to college, it just wasn't lasting, and I kind of fell off, and really the whole next phase of my life didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 25 years ago, I met my wife, Kim, and Kim was from a very strong Baptist Christian family. So now I started to see another whole side of of religion that I really didn't know existed. In what way? Um, it To me, religion had always been something very ritualistic. I thought that by being a good person or doing good things, that would get you to heaven. And what I realized was that it really had nothing to do with that, that you had to turn yourself over to Jesus Christ. And that idea was scary to me. So um, I guess I embarked on it by going back to church finally with Kim. And we started out at uh, Montgomery Community Baptist Church. And then we thought we'd try something different. We went to Crossroads. Mm Mm-hmm. And that didn't quite do it for us. Obviously, Crossroads is a very large church. And we have some friends on the eastern side of town. And we would drive down Newtown Road here, and we saw this big building going up. Didn't know what it was. And then one time we're driving by, and there's a big steeple in the, sitting in the grass. Sitting in, yeah, sitting out there. Yeah. I remember, I was there that day, yeah. That, that's going to be a church. So, And we still didn't really know anything about it. We started talking to some other people that had been coming there, so we decided to come. And that was maybe three years ago, and that was kind of the beginning of the change for me. Hmm. And I, I realized that I had spent my whole life, this started happening about six months ago, Chan, mm-hmm. controlling everything. That, I felt like I had been successful with that. I can control what happens to me, just the things you're saying this morning. And what I realized was I couldn't. I, in order for me to turn myself over, I had to give that up. And, mm-hmm. and I, my thought was I'll control my behavior so I make myself perfect. I'll then be able to go to, to Jesus. He'll accept me because I am perfect. And he'll keep me perfect the rest of my life. That yeah. was actually my thoughts. Yeah. And I realized, no, I need him in that journey now. Yeah. I have to, I have to start it now, not later. I need him in that journey to help me. So that was the most, probably the most important thought that ever came to me in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that. Again, this was about six months ago. And then you had two sermons. That really hit home to me. The first one was on stuff. Because I I had been a really good accumulator of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, not just in my job. And, but, you know, and it's not just stuff per se. It's, it's your whole behavior, your activity. It's getting ahead. It's 
getting the next sale, it's getting the next success. It's just more, 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 bigger house, bigger things. And part of that for me had been a, a collection of stuff that I had worked on literally since the early 50s. Wow. It had occupied my whole life. And and now here I am, and it was just getting bigger and bigger in my mind. And it started to control me, which hmm. was one of the things that you had mentioned in your sermon. And that's when I realized that I have to get rid of it. So I sold it all about eight months, six or eight months ago, all of it, all at one time. And that was so foreign to what I was used to. So uh, that you, was. And you told me that day, you said, See, it's not like I need the money, I wanted the freedom. Yeah, I didn't. You couldn't really, even you couldn't even enjoy exactly. the stuff because it, it had owned you now. So you it owned it. me. I did not need the money, and it owned me. And it just took me that long to realize that your huh. sermon really helped. And so I was able to make that break in my mind. And then <clears throat> the next sermon was on prayer. Well, that was something that was really foreign to me because growing up as Catholic, prayer to me was getting down on your knees putting your hands up to God and, and a recitation or a repetition, typically even of the same prayer time uh -huh. after time. And I realized that isn't prayer. Prayer is just any kind of discussion that you want to have with Jesus. And it can be hard. It can be easy. It can be Strong, it, it can be slang. I remember you actually used that word. Wow, I can use slang in my prayer with God. <laughs> <laughs> so that really, that really hit me, and it changed the way I look at prayer, and I thought of it as just a, any kind of simple communication. And the day I left mm -hmm. uh, talking with you, I, I have had a bad tendency my whole life of zipping in and out of traffic. And I left... Chad and I'm just driving to work and here comes his car down the road. I'm going to stop. And I, well, I can clear that. And I pull out and, and what happened next has never happened to me before. This guy was upset and he started coming into me mm -hmm. and literally he is going to run me off the road. And I went to the side of the road. Now I'm halfway in a ditch and boy was I mad. Oh my gosh. The road rage started. And and all of a sudden I stopped because I was ready to turn the car around and go after this. Go guy. run him into a ditch. Go run yeah, him that's into right. A yeah. Ditch. yeah. I stopped and I thought, wait a minute, this is this is a prayer coming from God. He's saying to me, Steve, don't do that anymore. You've been doing that your whole life. You know, it isn't his fault. It's your fault. So. And you said it was the first time you felt like it's not just prayers you, you talk to God, that God was actually sort of talking to you in that yeah, moment. It was yeah, a, it was a return, not a prayer being answered, it was a lesson prayer yeah. coming back. And so uh, that really had, those two sermons had a very big impact. And, and so it led really to a series of things that I started changing in my life. One was I wanted to give back financially. Uh, I was very fortunate in my careers, and so I, I'm in a position to do that. And I, I wanted to go back to three or four places that were special in my life. Uh, a great school that I went to where I happened to work actually a little bit during high school. My high school, St. Xavier. Um, most important, a hospital where I had worked also in high school. People that had given me things that helped me along, I wanted to give back to them. 
And then the biggest one of all, which is my church, and that's Horizon. So I've started that process and I want to continue it. And then, in addition, uh, <clears throat> to get baptized, yep. which will happen this spring mm-hmm. at the next baptism, uh, I never thought I'd be a part of a small group or a Bible study. That was really foreign to me. And uh, Jay had suggested that there was one on prayer come in. Well, how coincidental, right? So I thought, well, I'll do that. And I got into the group. It just started a month ago. Marcus and Neil lead it. And I'm in there with uh, four or five other guys. And it's been great. It's it's reinforced what I felt about prayer prior to that. So, so those were my next steps. And what I realize now is uh, my journey isn't over. It's just beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's happened in so many different ways. It, it's it's been great. Uh, I realize I've been blessed because God has returned so much more to me than I feel like I've given out through this process. Wow. And I guess that's just the way He works. So. And that's what we've been talking about. So when you replace God with good works, and again, there's a Catholic version of that, but there's also a Protestant version of that. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, any any religion can give you good works as your identity. But when you begin to swap your good works for grace, that's exactly what I yeah, find. People say something's changing. That's what I that's what I was doing, but yeah, I didn't couldn't realize it. Yeah, I couldn't put words to it. And so, but that's and the best thing of all, Chad. Um, as I got older, I'm 73. As I got older, I'm thinking, I'm afraid, this was prior, I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die. You know, I'm not ready mm-hmm. to die. And what the best thing this has taught me is that I'm ready. You know, yeah. it could happen. Whenever it happens, I'm fine with it because I know where I'm going, and that's the best thing of all. That is awesome. Can we thank Steve for telling the story? Steve, that's awesome, man. Let's pray together. And maybe you want to pray along in your own heart. Just, God, we want that. Maybe you want to say, God, I want that. I want a magnificent obsession that is secure. That is based on your work, not my work. That will fill me with joy. That will dispel fear. Give me freedom to set boundaries. Yet freedom to have a generous heart. God, we repent of the replacements in our life. Maybe you want to tell them about that one good thing you identified, that replacement. Got to repent of defining myself by my approval, my reputation, my stuff. God, we ask you, you died for us because we were trying to replace you. And yet you forgive us, you live in us, you invite us to invite you to come into our life that you can give us your playbook and you can walk life with us. We thank you for that journey. We thank you for that relationship, that prayer, that conversation we can have in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey man, thanks for being here today. If you came uh, prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on your way out. If you're new to the church or would like to share your journey uh, or just put a name with a face, third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hi to you as well. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.